Garry Kasparov of Russia is considered to be one of the greatest players to have played the game of chess. In the year 1996, when Kasparov was the reigning world champion, he had this interesting challenge of playing against uh, an IBM computer named Deep Blue. It was an interesting contest. Kasparov lost the first game, but managed to win the overall match. A year later, Deep Blue reissued a challenge and uh, wanted to play with Kasparov again. Uh, the difference this time was uh, Deep Blue had been heavily updated, and uh, some of them nicknamed it as Deeper Blue. And uh, the, the, the whole interesting contest uh, got the attention of the entire world, and everybody was watching. This was a nail-biting contest, a very interesting, fascinating game of chess. And Deep Blue became the first computer to defeat a reigning world chess champion. Uh, best analysts of those times started talking about the difference between a computer and a human being. And a word that kept resurfacing was the word feelings or soul. A professor from Yale made these interesting comments. I want to read that for you. The idea that Deep Blue has a mind is absurd. How can an object that wants nothing, fears nothing, enjoys nothing, needs nothing, and cares about nothing have a mind? It can win a chess, but not because it wants to. It isn't happy when it wins or sad when it loses. What are its aftermatch plans if it beats Kasparov? Is it hoping to take Deep Pink out for a night on the town? It doesn't care about chess or anything else. It plays the game for the same reason as a calculator adds or a toaster toasts, because it is a machine designed for that purpose. Fascinating words. One of the unique capacities that God has placed in us is the ability to feel. And I don't think any of us would want to trade that privilege. Our son recently celebrated his second birthday. One of the greatest moments in my life was being a dad. I remember holding my son for the very first time, looking into his face and almost seeing a reflection of myself. Special feeling, no words that can describe that. And we have to understand feelings are integral to our life. And these feelings even involve our walk with God. Because our walk with Jesus is not just cerebral or rational. It very much involves our emotions and our feelings. So as a result, there are times we sense the presence of God very close. We feel His joy. We feel close to Him. And we feel content. And there are other times when we feel God to be distant and far away, primarily because we've been shrouded by the trials and challenges of life. Like a cloud cover that prevents us from seeing the sun, in the same way the problems and difficulties of life tend to hide our view and perspective of God. Terrorists run airplanes into buildings. A tsunami of gigantic proportion strikes. Famine and drought in certain places in the world. We hear about genocides happening somewhere. A family in India lose their newborn because they don't have the money to pay the hospital for the incubator. And these things disturb us as we read them in our news, but they don't wreck us because they happen over there. But there are those problems we face in our own lives, our marriage problems, the relationship break breakdown, health problems, death of a loved one, stress at work, and the list goes on and on. What do we do with those feelings? Just shove them under the carpet? 
Now, many Christians think that negative emotions like anger, sadness, or fear indicate that something is wrong with their spiritual lives. They assume that these are signs of immaturity. And as a result, they think that they need to hide those feelings, that they don't have the permission to express them openly. Pete Skezero, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, says, To feel is to be human. To minimize or deny what we feel is a distortion of what it means to be image bearers of our personal God. It's an important reminder. Because when we face troubles in life, those sifting experiences that shake our very foundation, when all hell suddenly seems to break loose in our life, those moments we look up to God for answers, and sometimes we feel that God is silent. And during those moments, we ask this question, God, are you there? Are you there? And the only response that we seem to get is a deafening silence. If in your Christian life, you've come to this point where you ask questions like this, God, I don't understand what's happening in my life. I can't make sense of it. I feel your presence is a million miles away. Jesus, are you there? How many of you can relate to that? I ask you to raise your hands. And I want you to keep your hands raised and, and look around. Look around to see the number of people. You know, all along we've been thinking we are the only ones who are going through this problem. If I were to close my sermon right now and give a benediction, I would have communicated a very important point. You are not alone in this experience. There are several godly believers who have walked through this and have faced this in their life. But since it's a long weekend and you have come to church enthusiastically, I know you're a very godly group of people who love long sermons, so I'll keep going on. We're going to dive into a passage of scripture where two women ask this question to Jesus. Jesus, are you there? And the only response that they got was a deafening silence. But we are going to see how Jesus uses this deafening silence to teach these women and others around them and us today in the 21st century important lessons when we ask questions, where is God in the midst of all the chaos in my life? If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 11, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 16. John chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume, who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, 
but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. The passage ends on that optimistic note. You know this character in Winnie the Pooh called Eeyore, a lovable, dismal, gloomy donkey that speaks only negativities? Thomas is like that. And he's saying, well, Jesus is going to get stoned, all of us are going to die, and there's going to be a mass funeral. I love the drama and the action in John chapter 11. Because of all the miracles of Jesus, the resurrection of Lazarus is the most dramatic. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were very dear to Jesus. In fact, the gospel writer John is again and again emphasizing this point in this very chapter. Here in verse 3, So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Isn't it interesting that they didn't have to even mention Lazarus' name. All that they had to do was just communicate the message, the one you love is sick, and they knew that Jesus will know which one it is. It is obviously Lazarus, because he loved him so much. In verse 5, John is saying, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And again, verse 36, Then the Jews said, See how he loved him, referring to Jesus' love for Lazarus. So why is John emphatically stating this over and over in this passage? Because the chances are, as you read this chapter, you may come to the conclusion that Jesus did not care a dime for this family. He did not love them. As soon as Lazarus falls ill, the first thing, the first thing that comes to Mary and Martha's mind is Jesus. They need to send word to him. So they send this message and communicate it to Jesus. Because he's been their trusted friend. He's the one who has loved them. They have seen Jesus heal strangers. There would be long lineups of people standing, and Jesus would heal every single one of them. So they have seen all of that, and they knew, of course Jesus will heal Lazarus. Will he not? And we as readers, as we come to this passage, we would think, as soon as Jesus hears the word that Lazarus is sick, he will take a dash, go right there immediately, and heal Lazarus, and perform this miracle, so everybody will be able to say, Woohoo, what a great miracle. But that's not how this passage goes. Look at verse 6. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Jesus deliberately delays, stays there for two more days. The disciples are all set. They're getting up and they're thinking that they're going to Bethany to be with Lazarus and to heal him. And Jesus is saying, sorry, boys, we're not going anywhere. Just stay put. And by the time Jesus goes over to Bethany to Mary and Martha's home, Lazarus has been dead for four days. It's all over. Now, why is this delay? Why would Jesus withhold himself and delay and, and going over to Lazarus' place? We can see at least two reasons in this passage, and this will mess your minds. Are you ready for this? The delay was because Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That's why he delayed. And the second reason is for the faith of the disciples to be strengthened. He was going to use this as a learning tool to teach the disciples some important lessons on faith. 
And you're thinking right now, wait a minute. Are you saying that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? And that's why he delayed? That's why he didn't heal Lazarus? And that's why he would let Lazarus die? And he would let Mary and Martha suffer the agony of losing their brother? Yes, that's right. John had already emphasized in this passage over and over again, Jesus loved this family. And what Jesus is going to do doesn't seem like love to most people. But I want to read verses 5 and 6 together. You'll get this point. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And the shocking word over there is the word so in the beginning of verse 6. It connects the two verses together. In the original, you could also translate it as therefore. So it would read it this way. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and so, or therefore, he stayed where he was two more days. It was love that motivated this delay. Love that let Lazarus die. It was Jesus' love for this family, for the disciples, and for all of us today that he would orchestrate this whole episode. If you look at the, the newer version of the New International Version, that's how the verse is being translated as you saw it on the screen. And I believe that's the right translation. So how can this be love? This seems to be so cruel to us. How can we call this love? And you have to read verse 4 where Jesus first responds as he hears that Lazarus is ill. This is what Jesus says. This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Sickness for God's glory? Is that possible? Yes, that's right. This illness of Lazarus will put the glory of God on display. It will make Jesus look amazing. And Lazarus will be God's chosen vessel to accomplish this grand purpose. And that is why it's love. It's love that motivates this delay. God's goal in everything that he does is his glory. The word glory means weight or splendor. So it's because of God's love for us, he handpicks us and he allows us to go through circumstances. So through that, he can demonstrate his glory. And if God can use your life and my life to show forth his glory, his weight, his splendor, to show how amazing Jesus is, then our response should be, Lord, please bring it on. And listen to this. God would do anything in order to draw you closer to him. Even allow a delay so that through this experience we will see God's glory and come to worship him like never before in our life. So that's the first reason, love being the motivating factor for this whole delay. And the second reason is for the faith of the disciples to be strengthened. If you look at verses 14 and 15, so then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. For your sake, I'm glad I was not there. So was it for the disciples' sake that Jesus would let his close friend die? That he would disappoint Mary and Martha and bring agony into their lives? Yes, that's right. The word believe here is, is referring to a maturing faith. 
The resurrection of Lazarus would be a lesson on faith for all the disciples. Because very soon Jesus was going to be gone and he will entrust a mission beyond the wildest imagination of the disciples and they are to go out and, and fulfill that mission. And in order to fulfill that mission, they needed to know that they serve a God of the impossible, a God who, who has all power, even over death. They need to know that Jesus can do anything. And in order for them to learn this lesson, to drive home this message, Jesus creates this episode. So through this, they will learn something meaningful in their faith. And God is the same today. He will not spare us from any experience to teach us and others around us and bring us to this level of maturity in our faith. So to sum it up, through the delays, the unresponsiveness, and the silence of God, His glory will be demonstrated, His love for His people will be affirmed, and his, our faith would be strengthened. So that's the background setup as we understand the re delay for Jesus going over to Lazarus' site. My wife and I have uh, came to Canada exactly three years ago. The first six months of our time here was a nightmare. It was probably one of the most challenging times of our life, of our marriage, in every way. I don't want to go into all of the details of it, but basically I was a full-time seminary student with very little money, go early in the morning, come back late in the evening. And every time I come back home, I'll see my wife in tears. She's stayed home all day long with nobody to talk to, nothing to do. It's especially hard for her. And we went through all of the challenges that a family who's a newcomer face here when they arrive in Canada. And during those moments, we would cry out to God, Lord, we thought you brought us here. We thought you made the way for us to come here. And why is this so hard? Why is this so difficult? Why can't we get our head around these circumstances? Why do we have to endure all of this? It just doesn't make sense, God. Jesus, are you there? Are you there? And the only response we would hear in return is a deafening silence. But little did I know that God would use this very experience to place a burden in my heart for the newcomers who are coming into this country. Little did I know that through this experience, God would open a ministry for me here at Center Street Church that we can minister to the new immigrants in the city of Calgary. If somebody had told me three years ago that I would be preaching at Center Street Church, I wouldn't have believed it. I would have thought it was a joke. The delays the silence and the absence of God, all are for a reason. It's for the glory of God to be demonstrated and for our faith to be strengthened. That's the lesson that we learned. This passage also speaks about an important aspect of our spiritual life, our disappointments. C.S. Lewis, the great British Christian thinker and apologist, wrote this book called The Problem of Pain. And here he justifies the goodness of God in the midst of the apparent evil all around us. And you know C.S. Lewis, he's, he's one of the sharpest minds around. And as a result, this book is one of the powerful, brilliant arguments for the existence of God in the midst of suffering. But a few years later, Lewis wrote another book called A Grief Observed. 
And this was in response to the death of his wife, a painful death to cancer. You know what's the difference between the two books? The first one had emphasized on the logic and the philosophical side of God's existence in the midst of suffering. But the second book was written by somebody who has gone through the valley of suffering himself. And as a result, the emotions come out. You can feel the, the feelings of Lewis as somebody who's grieving the death of his wife. He's not talking about the logic. He's not talking about how God exists in the midst of suffering. He's expressing his doubts. He's pouring out his heart to the point that C.S. Lewis would use a pseudonym to write this book because he didn't want others to know that it was his writing. It's one thing to talk about this stuff in theory, but it's totally different to go through it ourselves. We can talk about this all in glib, theological, philosophical language, but when you walk through it, it's a totally different ballgame. Jesus finally makes his way to Bethany. He didn't heal Lazarus, he let him die. And what was worse was he was not even present at the funeral. Jesus was not there when Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were going through the most difficult time of their life. He was absent. Can you imagine and picture the disappointments? As soon as Lazarus fell sick, Mary and Martha would have told him, Lazarus, you don't have to worry. We have sent word to Jesus. That's the first thing we did. And we know that everything is going to be fine because Jesus will come in a matter of time. They check with the messengers to make sure the message was delivered promptly. And they hear that, yes, Jesus got the message. So which means he's going to be here. But no signs of Jesus. Lazarus' condition is deteriorating. Still no Jesus. Lazarus has come to the final point of his life when he's almost dying. And Mary and Martha leaning over to his bed and saying, Lazarus, just hold on a little bit. Hold on, Jesus will come. Just hold on a little bit, Lazarus. He healed strangers. He healed the Romans. He healed the Samaritans. Of course he will heal us. He loves us, Lazarus. Just hold on a little bit. Lazarus is gone. People come to Mary and Martha and say, your brother is dead. It's time to bury him. Still no, Jesus, he's not even going to be at the funeral. You've got to understand the cultural implications to really grasp what's happening here. Because in the Jewish culture and several other cultures in the world, including the culture that we come from, we don't have the concept of a private mourning. We live life in community. As a result, we mourn in community. So when somebody dies and their word gets around, the entire neighborhood will be there to pay their last respect. Relatives who are near and far will travel long distance and they will come. Even strangers will be there at the funeral. And there would be loud weeping and wailing. You may not even know the person, but still you're weeping because you're partaking in the sorrow of the community. And the worst thing is when somebody close to you whom you love so much, doesn't show up at the funeral. That's the most heartless, insulting thing that you can do to a family by not being present at the funeral. And this must have been especially hard for Mary and Martha. That Jesus, the one whom they loved so much, their trusted friend, was not there for their brother's funeral. 
You look at verses 17 to 21. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews who had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see the first thing that Martha had to say to Jesus? If you had been there, Jesus, if you had been there, this terrible thing, this terrible tragedy would not have happened to us. And behind that are these ironic words when she's actually asking Jesus, Jesus, do you have any clue of the agony that me and my sister went through? And this passage is telling us Martha goes over to receive Jesus, but Mary stayed home. Why do you think she stayed home? We don't have an answer in this passage, but my guess is she was mad at Jesus. She was not able to reconcile with this fact that Jesus would not show up. What do you do with those feelings? And now she's expressing it. She didn't want to see his face. She would rather choose to be home. And when Mary finally gets to meet Jesus, she asks an identical question like Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In verses 23 and 24, you see Jesus' response to Martha. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You know, Martha is thinking Jesus is throwing this resurrection stuff at her just to make her feel better. You know, we do that in Christian funerals when we use those usual spiritual cliches to be able to say, oh, he has gone to a better place. Don't worry, you will see her again. So Martha is thinking Jesus is just using the resurrection as an excuse and just to make her feel better. So she's saying, yes, I know. I know there's a resurrection at the last day. Lazarus will rise again. But still, you don't have any excuse for not being there. And Jesus now looks at this woman torn in grief and makes this statement only a crazy person would make or a person who's so deluded that he needs to be kept in a psychiatric ward. He knew he would make or perhaps the Son of God would make. He says in verses 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha, you think the resurrection is a future event? And yes, it is. But I want you to know, Martha, that I am the resurrection. And when you are connected to me, you are connected to that resurrected life. So you don't have to worry about death, Martha, because in me, death has lost its sting. And the pertinent thing in this is the question that Jesus puts forward, do you believe this? Martha, you think I have disappointed you. You think that I have let you down. You think I was not there for you when you needed me most. You think I was absent. In spite of all of these things that has happened to you, Martha, do you still believe in who I claim myself to be? That, I tell you, is powerful. When Jesus stands before the tomb of Lazarus and he asks them to roll the stone over, Martha is once again protesting and she's saying, he's been there for four days, there will be a bad order. 
And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So in the midst of your disappointments, in the midst of your feeling that God is absent, in the midst of your trials and difficulties, if you can believe, if you can hold on to faith in Jesus, if you can continue to trust in Him and, and continue to follow Him and not give up, the promise is you will see the glory of God. Whether God answers the prayer and does a miracle or he gives you his grace that is sufficient. No matter what the outcome is, you will see a manifestation of God's glory. We receive requests from people who are diagnosed with cancer or some other serious disease. They come to the church and ask for prayers and we pray with them. And a week later, we, we receive this email saying, God has done this amazing miracle. I'm totally healed. The cancer is gone. The, I feel all right now. A miracle has taken place. And we celebrate because we know that it is a manifestation of God's glory. We are truly thankful for those miracles. And we also receive emails which say that the person is not recovering, that it continues to be a downward slide, and they're eventually going to die. But that doesn't diminish the glory of God in any way. Even in the midst of death, in the midst of those trials, the faith that they hold on to and the attitude that they possess becomes a witness so that the watching world gets to see the glory of God. So the bottom line in all of this is not the outcome, but it's the faith. We have very little comprehension of what our faith means to God. And you read the book of Job, the entire trials and challenges that Job went through, the reason behind all of that was to test Job's faith, to see if he would love and worship God in spite of all of those challenges. That was the whole reason why he was put through this issue of suffering. And when we hold on to God in tough times, when we continue to believe in Him and express our faith, it means so much to God. This is simple faith. No matter what, I choose to believe. No matter what the outcome, I placed my trust in Jesus. Come here to verses 32 and to 35. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, referring to Mary, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And verse 35 says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. They say this is the shortest verse in the Bible. But these two words mean so much. The Greek concept of God was a God of, who has no emotions, a God who will have no messy involvement in human affairs. The worldview of deism says that God has created this world and has gone away on a long celestial holiday. And so God has no involvement in this world. He has basically detached himself. He's created the world in such a way that the world can run on its own course. It doesn't need his intervention. But these concepts are foreign to the Bible because the God of the Bible is a God with emotions and feelings. He is not impassive by any means. 
The Bible presents that God grieves. He expresses displeasure. He's angry. He laughs. He expresses love, joy, delight. The Bible uses several imageries to compare to God. And one of the imageries that is used in Isaiah is when God himself is comparing himself to a woman giving birth. God says, like a woman giving birth, I cry out, I gasp, and I pant. If you have given birth to a child, or if you are a husband who stood with your wife at the time of childbirth, you know the intensity of those emotions. You know the facial expressions, the clenched fists, the cries, and the groans, the gasping, and the panting. And exactly it is this language that God is using to describe his own emotional life. And does God understand our deepest sorrows, our greatest regrets, our painful disappointments, and our crushing moments? Of course he does. Not just because he's an all-knowing God. He knows it because of experience. He has been through it all. And when Mary and Martha were thinking in their heart, Jesus, you let us down. You watched us when, when we went through this agony of burying our brother. You were not there for us in our most important moments. Jesus' response was his tears. Jesus wept. This was God expressing solidarity with the sufferer. He's moved with the emotions of his people, the ones whom he loves, that he puts his arms around them and he's there for them. So this is not a God who lives up in heaven in a high and lofty place. This is Emmanuel, God with us. And during those moments in your life and my life, when we are all alone and when we are in tears, we are crying and we are saying deep in our hearts silently, is there anybody who hears my cries? Is there anybody who can understand my feelings? Is there anybody who can pay attention to how my heart is feeling right now? Jesus comes alongside us and he says, I understand what you're going through, and I care for you. I love you. The best gift you can give to a person who is mourning is not philosophical, theological answers to why they are suffering. The best gift that you can give is your tears. And that's what Jesus does. He doesn't give you a reason for your suffering. He gives you his very own tears. What this means is that we don't have to suffer in silence. We don't have to grieve alone, and we don't have to numb our sense of pain. In order to deal with those inner damaged emotions, people resort to denial, rationalization, or we play the blame game, we blame ourselves or somebody else, or we get into addictions, work 70 hours a week, indulge in porn, overeat, drink, use pills, and all of this to somehow numb the sense of pain. And some of you are sitting right here who are struggling with the things that I'm talking about. And I want you to know there is a Savior who is willing to put his arms around you if only you will open your heart to him. One of the privileges, the grandest privileges we have as followers of Christ, 
is to bear open our feelings to God and know that God understands and he cares. He's not going to strike you for those feelings. He's going to wrap his arms around you. Philip Yancey in his book, Disappointment with God, says, throw at God your grief, your anger, your doubt, your bitterness, your betrayal, and your disappointment. He can absorb them all. He can absorb them all. In the ancient Middle Eastern culture, when a soldier goes out for a war, he would buy a bottle like this, and he would give it to his wife or to his mother. And she in turn would say to him, your absence will make me so sad. I will miss you so much that I will cry every night. And when I cry, I will collect my tears in this bottle. So when you return back, you will be able to see this bottle, see these tears, and you will know how precious you are to me. You know what the Bible says in Psalm 56, 8? You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. When you and I enter the glories of heaven, Jesus will be waiting for us. And he will have a bottle like this in his hands. And the bottle will be filled with all the tears that we shed here on earth. And he will say to us, I didn't miss a single drop. All those moments of agony, all those moments of heartbreak, all those moments of pain, I noticed every bit of it. And these tears are precious to me. They are precious to me. We reach the climax of John 11, seen verses 43 to 44. When Jesus had said this, he called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This, I tell you, is an amazing scene. Nobody must have moved. Everybody froze. Everybody was in a state of shock as they saw this miracle of Lazarus rising up from his grave. I tell you, this is better than any horror movie. Lazarus dead for four days, is now running around still on his grave clothes, and nobody dares even to touch him. And the resurrection of Lazarus, as glorious as it is, is just a preview. It's just a trailer. Because one day, the same Jesus who called Lazarus out of his grave will call your name, will call my name, and we will rise from the dead, and we will be in the presence of God. And on that day, there will be no more sorrows, no more pain, no more tears. God himself will wipe our tears. This is the hope of the gospel. Do you believe this? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And if you don't have this hope, today is the day for you to open your heart to Jesus because he can fill you with this glorious hope of the resurrection. We see again in Disappointments with God, Philip Yancey says, the Bible never belittles the problem of suffering. It adds one word, the word temporary. Temporary. In light of the grand destination towards which we are headed, 
the inconveniences of the journey become so small. And when my wife makes some of those delicious Indian food, sometimes she works for hours in the kitchen. And she starts with all the raw materials. So she's grinding all the spices, cutting the onions. And my son and myself, we are complaining. We're complaining that the smell is too strong, that uh, our eyes are watery, that we are sneezing and coughing as a result of that. And it feels terrible. But then dinner time comes, and the food is all set on the table. It looks like a grand feast. And we are sitting, and we are enjoying the food. We're not thinking about the teary eyes, the coughing, and the sneezing. In fact, in our home, very little conversation happens at the dinner table because we are so busy eating. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. The, the grand outcome minimizes all of the inconveniences that we face, those temporary moments of life. And the central message of Jesus Christ is suffering, pain, sickness, trials, all of them point to the resurrection. And just as real are the losses of life, so are the promises of God. While we may feel at times that God is absent, as we look in retrospect, as we look back, we will realize God has never been more present. Those moments when we felt he was far away, he was right there for us. We may feel God is far away, but we will never be abandoned, never be forsaken. And Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, in their old age, would recount this very story that we read about, would have talked about this to other believers and said how Jesus used this very delay in their life to demonstrate his glory and to strengthen their faith. God willing, one day, my wife and I, in our old age, will tell our grandchildren and others about the challenges that we went through when we first came here into Canada but how God used that very thing to demonstrate his glory and to strengthen our faith and the faith of others around us. And there are some of you who are sitting here today who so identify with this message because you're walking through that very situation in your life right now. You're questioning, Jesus, I can't make sense of what's happening in my life. This is just too painful. My heart is breaking. Jesus, are you there? And my prayer, even as I was preparing this message, is that you will be able to share one day this very situation that you're going through. And you will be able to share a testimony of how God used those situations to demonstrate His glory and to strengthen your faith. Because in your dark moments, in your difficult moments, if you believe and continue to hold on to God and continue to trust in Him, you will see his glory. I've come to the end of this message and I want to give an opportunity for you to respond. So I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes and bow down for a moment of silence and let God speak to your heart. Let the Spirit of God take these words and, and lay them deep into your soul. And I talked about some of you here in this place who are going through those very moments when you feel so far away from God when you just can't understand what is happening in your life and you're wrestling with it, it's ripping your heart apart and you are weeping. And this is a time I want you to cry out to God because he's here in this place and ask him to renew the sense of his presence, of his love. 
And there are others of us here in this place who need to be prepared because we will go through these very challenges one day. The challenges may come very soon. And maybe ask that God would give us a faith that would be so strong that our faith will not fail even in times of suffering. Let's pause and, and maintain this moment of silence and allow God to speak and make in turn a commitment to him. God is speaking to you and you are going through this testing time in your life and you feel God's presence far away and you need prayers you need once again a touch of his love you need once again to know that the compassionate savior is on your side we want to pray with you as a church may I ask you to stand up May I ask you, this is the time for you. If you're going through those grieving moments in your life, when you're in tears, I'm going to give this opportunity because Jesus is in this place. The one who was with Mary and Martha is, is here with us. And we want to pray for you that God would renew a sense of his presence and let you know that he's there on your side. And I see a number of them are standing by. And if you're sit, sitting next to them, may I ask you just to lay your hands on them just lay your hands on them and uh, we will just bring them before God today and we will pray that Jesus will be here reaching out to us. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you are a God who is not far away, up in the heavens, but you are a God who reached down to us. You are a God who is Emmanuel and you are here in this place. We sense your presence and we want to bring your dear children before you, the ones who are standing up right now. Their heart is being torn apart, Lord. They are going through circumstances that they cannot understand why they are going through. And even as they are struggling right now, I know that you see, you see their heart, you understand their pain. Would you now reach out and touch them with your love? Would you reassure them of the hope that we have in you? that you are not separated from them, but you are there for them. You are right beside them, and you are going to use this very situation that they are going through to demonstrate your glory and to strengthen their faith. For that is our prayer this morning, O oh God, that people will see through the circumstances and the situations that these precious people are going through, your glory, and you are there on their side. Thank you, Father. We are never forsaken, never abandoned because we are children of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we pray for the rest of us. Oh, would you prepare us? Would you deepen our faith that no matter what the outcome is, we will continue to hold on to you, continue to believe in you, and we would see the mighty hand of God at work in our life, demonstrating his glory even through us. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing, comforting fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen.